Welcome to Death Do Us Park Podcast, hosted by my wife, Jamie. Hello. And myself, Mark. What up, y'all? Hey. Hi. So. What's up? Oh, my God. We're kind of rushing today because. We are. I have to fix my microphone. My nephew's <clears throat> birthday party is shortly. But yep. We. I'm fixing my mic, too. We had to get this out. Yeah, a lot of people are. Yes. On our backs. Kelly texts me every day. Mm. When the fuck are you going to do it? Like, when is it coming? If this was our full-time job, we would we would have no problem doing an episode every a day. day. Yeah. Every day. But life seems to get in the way, so we have football practice. Baby we Jesus have, hates me. Yeah, we have doctor's right. appointments. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, you had a wedding reception. Congratulations, Eric. Yeah, congratulations. Babe, so it was like a fucking Buds reunion. Oh, I bet. Oh, it was great. Mm-hmm. No one else knows what Buds is, so. Oh, that's okay. Okay. All right. Your ambulance company. Yeah. The poor new kid was sitting next to me, and he must have said like three times, and you're the HR director? <laughs> yes. That says a lot. Just move along. Mm-hmm. So, no, it was fun. I had a good time. I'm glad you got out. It's been a while. Yeah. No. And so. I had little man all day, and. We did pretty good yeah. until... He's not a fan when I'm gone. No, not at all. And so, especially at bedtime. Yeah. Then he gets very antsy and wants mama. And he yelled at me. He called me and yelled at me. I know he did. Yeah. Which I didn't know he was doing. Yeah. So I just told him to take his medicine and lay down. And then I heard the ringing. And I'm like, oh, he's... Oscar thought it was fucking hilarious because we were sitting by this giant fire pit. And I, we were talking about the kids, and then Leah called, and he's like, "Your kids are like fucking Beetlejuice. You say their name three times, and they right. fucking call you." I was I like, know. "Dude, every time." So, but yeah, it wasn't a bad day. We yeah. Played outside, and he did good. And like I said, just until it was, he was getting. Yeah. You could tell he was getting sleepy, but you know, then after he got off the phone with you, he started crying, and yeah. I'm like, "Oh my god, here we go." Which kills me. Like, okay. But it only lasted about five minutes, and then I think I might have knocked out first. Yeah, well, I mean, usually it, it doesn't last long. Yeah, it, so. it, it didn't. He flipped over like he was pissed, <laughs> and then, like, I just, I didn't say anything to <laughs> Do him. Do you know why he was pissed? Why? Because Nicole took the phone for me. <laughs> Oh. And she's like, Mom ain't coming home till 11. <laughs> <laughs> and you fucking hung up on her. <laughs> that's why he I was, was wondering why he was so angry. That's why he was so pissed. Yeah, because everybody was trying to talk to him, and then Nicole just took the he phone. He got quiet, like mm-hmm. slammed the phone down, mm-hmm. and then like flipped over super hard. Yeah, because Nicole told him I wasn't coming home till 11. <laughs> you guys are such dicks. She's like, he just fucking hung up on me. <laughs> You guys are assholes. So, yeah. Poor Jax. Oscar's Just wanted like, his mama. Give me the phone. Give me the phone. Oscar, you are shit-faced. I'm not handing you the phone. <laughs> no. Uh, oh, my God. He was, he was fucking hilarious last night. So. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. I did. You needed to get out. So. Uh, yeah. I did. <clears throat> yeah. So. I need to, too. I know. Let's go. Shit. Oh, babe. Time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you afterwards. No, yeah. I'll tell you now. So uh, a song came on and I, I went back in and a couple of the girls were out there dancing. And I was like, we all know where this song is from, right? 
And they looked at me and they're like, Dollar Dance Club. Oh, I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is why you're my people. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so. That was our thing. Oh, my God. And it's the same fucking song. It's got to be the Dollar Dance We can't song. go back to that one, though. Too many shootings now. Yeah, well, there's a lot of shootings beforehand. Yeah, we either got to go to the one in the Heights or there's one out this way that's... What's in the Heights? 390. Have we ever been to that one? No. Oh. Okay. There's one out this way? It's a little past Naperville. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. High Heel Saloon or something. Oh, that's a clever name. Mm. That's terrible. I like it. <laughs> Shit. Why don't we just fucking go to Atlantis and be done with it? No, because... No. I mean... Too many shootings around there's there, There's really not at Atlantis. No, there is. Uh, there is. Whatever. No. Too many and I know too many shitheads that go there. Mm. That's the problem. Yeah, good point. That's because so. cheap dances and stuff. So that's, Is it cheap in there? Yeah, that's I didn't know that. that's their spot. So that was a good thing about Claveau. They would have like fucking two dollar domestics. Yeah. <laughs> I know. You couldn't beat that's that. Great. You could not fucking beat that. Mm-mm. So oh anyways. My God. So we got a good one today. We do. We also have a lot of Patreons. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, Jackson changed the pictures on my phone. It's pissing me off. I have to change them back. Um, it's Simba and fucking Nala, and it says, why are you on my phone? <laughs> what? what? Whatever. So, okay. Um, I think last time we ended with Lisa Lopez, right? Yes. Yes. So then with Lindsay is her mom Judy yes they are a package deal and I forgot to mention Judy last episode so I apologize so Judy is also a Patreon yes Uh, we have Michelle who's a lieutenant Robin who's a patrolman Dallas who is a sergeant Tracy who is a sergeant and Carrie who is a lieutenant ooh so thank you guys you guys are fucking awesome for real I love it I love getting the notification and then, uh, her name. Just go for <laughs> it. I'm going to try it. And if I, I really would like to know how to pronounce it. If I'm yeah. She wants us to try it though. So we called her, what did I call her last? I think I just called her by her last name. Yeah. Last name. So I believe her first name is pronounced Tunatsen. That's what I'm saying too. That's what I think. I've been practicing. <laughs> like I've legit been practicing. So I think it's Chunatsen. So if that's right, tell us. Yeah, because I'm curious. If it's not, not you're more than welcome to send a message and be like, you're a fucking idiot. This is how you say it. Because <laughs> I'm okay with that. That's what I'm saying too, though. Yeah. From that's the what spelling. It, that's what it looks like to me. Yeah. So. So we tried. Yeah. We tried. I tried really hard. Yeah. I studied. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, today, uh, today's the beginning of a good one. It is. Everybody has wanted to hear this one. Yeah. From the beginning, from when we fucking started the podcast. This mm-hmm. was like the first request. Yeah. And I started it, but then we did Chris Watts, and I couldn't do kids for a while. And then you didn't while. want to do kids for yeah. a while. Yeah. I had to take a break from it. I get it. So. I get it. But this one is just so fucking interesting, and... It's insane. You're, you're not in the middle. You're either one way mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the other, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, there's really, so. there's not a gray area with mm-hmm. this one at all. No, no. There's, there's not. 
it's you think they they did it or you, you think they're completely innocent. And I feel like a lot of people go into it thinking one way and then change their mind. That's what I did. Yeah. I didn't know much about it. I just saw, you know, before I watched the documentary, um, or one of them, you know, just thinking, oh, okay, these fucking assholes, little, these little right. kids got massacred, right? And then you see the offenders, and they're like, oh, yeah, right. they look like shithead, fucking mm-hmm. loser, typical losers, mm-hmm. or whatever. And then you dive into it, and it's like, you're like, what? What the, the fuck? fuck is going on like, in this time? How does this even happen? Yeah, like, what are the cops doing? Like, it's it's bad. Yeah, it's it's one of those. So it totally changed my perspective, and yeah. then I had no clue. Um. As far as like notable people that are backing these, yeah, we'll get that. We'll get into that in part two, part two or three. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. This might be a three parter. <clears throat> um, I, I'm trying. I'm digging as deep as I can, but I feel like there's so much information out there. Oh, I know. I know. I feel like this <clears throat> may be one where I, I might not be able to find something that somebody doesn't know. Yeah, which kind of pisses me off, but um. I have my opinions on who I think did it. I, oh, I do too, and I think we're on the same. We are, hundred percent. Yeah, we've talked yeah. about it before. We're on the same person. Yeah. So. so, so we're doing well, the West Memphis Three, guys. Yep. I mean, I, I think you should just get right into it because there's so much. There is. I mean, uh, trigger warning. Part one is going to um, include the graphic details of the injuries to the boys. And the autopsy, so it's it's a bit much. Yeah. So just trigger warning, FYI. Fast forward through it if you want. I'll I'll tell you when it's coming. So. Yeah. Um. All right. So let's start. So according to Wikipedia, satanic panic is a moral panic consisting of over twelve thousand unsubstantiated cases of satanic ritual abuse, starting in the U.S. in the nineteen eighties spreading throughout many parts of the world by the 1990s and persisting today. Uh, I feel like your mom is part of the Satanic Panic. You know, and... And I'm not just, being a dick. I'm no, not being, I know. Um, I was trained in it. Like, they... There's classes. Yeah, yes. there's classes and a little bit of the homicide uh, investigation class I did. They kind of briefly talked about it, mm-hmm. but, like, I've never... No. No. N- not even close. And we to... talked about it in the uh, <clears throat> the, the Jennifer's Bodies case. They, 99% of it is is exaggerated. Yeah, it and, is. Oh, know, it totally is. To it's... prove a point and to serve a purpose. Right. So. I mean, my God, the music, all the detectives listen to the same kind of music. Right. right. So. <laughs> right. right. Well, like 90% of us are all metalheads. Yeah. So. It's. it's yeah. So what really started the satanic panic um, was in the 80s with the McMartin preschool case. Have you ever heard of this? No. Okay. So um, a mother whose child <clears throat> attended McMartin preschool reported to police that her son had been sodomized by her ex-husband, who was a teacher at the school, mm. who was also the grandson of the owner. Uh, Judy Johnson was her name. She made several accusations of satanic ritual abuse out of nowhere with nothing. She made it up. Um, I think it, a lot has to do with the area, too, in the country. It's I the mean, fucking Bible Belt, conservative, yeah. and... Out in the boonies, yeah. children of the corn. Um, this one wasn't, though. 
No, I know, but I'm just saying, I yeah. think the majority. Because, like, yeah. uh, okay, I was taught it, but, like, my area was all gangbangers. Exactly. So, exactly. I, I never And came the in way these it. people would have been viewed in California versus the Midwest. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, uh, police actually fanned the flames by sending out a form letter to approximately 200 parents telling, ooh, shit, almost knocked it all down. Um, you all right? Yeah. Uh, Jeez. <laughs> sent out I thought a you fell out of your chair. I almost did. <laughs> uh, something unplugged. Uh, I don't know. My headphones are louder. Let's, Wait. There you go. Better? Yeah. Okay. Better? Yeah. Try sure. not to touch anything. Just shut up. God, you suck at this. I fucking hit everything. <laughs> so you fucking fall. You fucking oh trip over. You and your son Dude, he, and your daughter. He's a dick. I didn't fall like mom. She fell on her face. <laughs> oh, poor Jax fell off his bed today. <laughs> it sounded like I thought he was coming through the room ceiling. And then I was like, oh, you fell like mom. Just to be a little dick. Yeah. And he's, he's like, like, no, mom fell on her face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I fell on my elbow. Yeah. <laughs> Assholes. Anyways. Ugh. So the police sent out a form letter to approximately 200 parents telling them to ask their children if they'd been abused and specifically named Ray Buckley, who was the guy Johnson accused of um, sodomizing her son and of being a witch. Hmm. Uh, Hundreds of interviews were done with the children where um, it was stated, quote, many of the kids' statements were generated by the examiner. Now, you've heard us talk about it before. Kids will have, like, forensic interviews. They basically piled these kids up in the fucking gym and interviewed them all. Like, it was ridiculous how they did this. Oh, my God. A forensic interview is a pain in the dick. Well, there was a hundred, hundreds of kids. Have we gone over forensic yes. interviews? Yes, we okay. have. So, so that's what I'm saying. Like, may, they, Maybe you should just do a quick synopsis of what it is, or if you want me to. Yeah, you do. So basically, a forensic interview is the police don't interview a juvenile. So a juvenile victim, witness, they don't do offenders. Um, But any juvenile, especially like young children that are involved in some kind of incident, whether it be sexual, physical, whatever, they have a trained counselor that does the interview for the police. Someone that's trained and knows how to speak to children. The forensic interview is then you know it's obviously videotaped it's watched by the police officer it's watched by um whatever state's attorney is assigned to it um they don't allow the parents to to view it or be in the room which they shouldn't they shouldn't you know they they do that so the children don't feel like forced to make any statements so in a nutshell, that's that's what a yeah. forensic interview is. So none of these children had forensic interviews. And they were all um, given kind of little nuggets to go off of, basically, to make up a story, essentially. Yeah. So, and they're kids. Yeah. They don't, you know. Um, so the case lasted years and cost $15 million, making it the longest and most expensive case in the history of the U.S. legal system. Wow. I did not know that. It resulted in zero convictions. Wow. Yeah. Um, Judy Johnson was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and died in 1986 from complications of alcoholism before the preliminary hearing even concluded. Jesus. 
This was then morphed into a widespread fear that a battle of good versus evil was raging just below the surface of the American culture. Oh, I got to turn. Okay. Uh, you got a what? I had to turn. Oh. Heavy metal songs that allegedly contain subliminal yeah. backwards messages. Come on, yeah. Album art, horror movies, and fantasy games like Dungeons and Dragons all offered easy, obvious targets. I never played that. Brad did. <laughs> nerd alert. Are you surprised by that? <clears throat> so they were pretty much Brad, insinuating. you're a nerd. They were insinuating that people who listen to this type of music or watch the movies were, were easy targets to come after for crimes. Um, so obviously that means if you listen to Metallica and wear black clothes, you worship the devil and deal with the occult. Then I guess I was part of uh, that. Please tell me you saw the picture on Facebook with the lead singer of Metallica. How he looks now? They're like fan of Metallica and he's dressed in all black <laughs> yeah, with like the chains. Going shopping. And then he's in like fucking golf shorts and an yeah. Eddie Bauer shirt. Yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. So. Most metalheads are like that. Yeah. So. Like you, you know, Corey Taylor. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. It's dude crazy. from Slipknot yeah. wears a mask, but then you see him without it. His and voice he's, is beautiful. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. So. But the, the the preschool case was insane. Like, these kids were saying there was a secret tunnel under the school that oh, they were being taken down to, and they were they were flying. And, I mean, it was it yeah. was insane. And all of the teachers were arrested. What? All of them. Because it was run by a family. So the entire family was fucking arrested. We might have to do this case. Cause this, you want me? I can do it. Yeah, this, um, like, I would, I'm kind of curious on Oh, it's fucking fuck insane. Like, literally... That's how this case started. What did they have to arrest all the teachers? Nothing. The mom was pissed off at her ex-husband so did, and did made up sue? the story. I don't know. I don't uh, know. We, we might have to do this case. Okay, I can do that. Um, so this this case takes place in West Memphis, Arkansas, which, like we said, Bible Belt, conservative, um, and that very much, I feel like, comes into play in this case. Me and Lugo drove through it. Really? Yeah. You got to so, drive through it to get to Atlanta. Um, I got free McDonald's. Oh, all right. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people won't give, like, political opinions or whatever on cases. Uh, Mark and I don't give a shit. No, so. I don't give a shit. Whatever. If we do, we do. Yeah. If you don't like it, then I've been through too much shit to give a fuck now. That's the... So. It's, yeah. So, and if you can't speak the truth, then why even fucking do right, this? Right. So, very conservative in in West Memphis. Like, if you had long hair and you were a boy, you something was wrong with you. You were trouble. You shouldn't be dealt with. It was just stupid shit. They like were that. very friendly. The in West Memphis. Yeah. Well, very that's friendly. You guys were high and tight. And, and then there was a, a shooting in West Memphis. Really. It's on the internet. I believe it's West Memphis. It's terrible. Where the chief's son gets ambushed on a traffic stop oh, by some skinheads. No kidding. Oh, I'll have to show it to you. It's yeah. fucking bad. Wow. It's really fucking bad. They light him up with an AK on the side of the road. I remember this. Yeah. I wow. think that was West Memphis. We'll have to look. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, May 5th, 1993, uh, at 2.30 p.m., Stevie Branch is checked out of school by his mom, Pamela Hobbs. Just like any normal day. Checked out. She picked him up. That's what it means. Um, she asks him if he has any homework. He says yes, but it's done, and he hangs it on the fridge. I got to move this again. I can't get this in there. I might have to. You keep unplugging. I, 
Okay, there you go. And then I might have to pause because I'm going to have to tell Jack's signal to him to turn on the uh, Purdue-Iowa game. Jesus Christ. Sorry. Um, Michael Moore comes over to see if Stevie can come to his house. Pam says no because she's cooking dinner soon, but the boys are relentless and she finally gives in. Pam tells Stevie if he's not home by 4.30, he's grounded for two weeks. At 3.35 p.m., Christopher Byers comes to Stevie's house. Pam tells him Stevie and Michael went to Michael's house, so he headed over there. Stevie lived at 16th Street and Macaulay Drive, which was a few blocks away from Barton Street, which is where Christopher and Michael lived. Uh, and they did live across the street from each other. So the three eight-year-old boys attended Weaver Elementary School together, and they were also in the Cub Scouts at the Wolf Level together. Um. <laughs> At 4.15 p.m., Terry Hobbs gets home from work. At 4.45 p.m., Stevie still isn't home, but Pam has to go to work and figures he's just being a little shithead eight-year-old and didn't come home on time, so she's just going to ground him when he gets home. At 5 p.m., Terry takes Pam to work at a local fast food restaurant called Catfish Island, which is awesome. Um, Terry will later state that after he dropped Pam off, he, quote, immediately started looking for Stevie. Mm -hmm. At 5.30 p.m., John Mark Byers is doing yard work and sees Christopher and the two boys. At approximately 6 p.m., Dana Moore, Michael's mother, saw the three boys riding their bikes on North 14th Street going north towards Goodwin. Um, so it's reported in a couple sources that the neighbors saw Christopher and Michael riding bikes with Stevie on a skateboard at around 630. Um, and it's also reported that there was no skateboard that Stevie was riding on the back of one of the bikes, like on the pegs. Yeah. Are you paying attention to me? I'm texting. Thank Jax. you. Um, <laughs> it's also reported that a neighbor. Yeah, he was riding on pegs. <laughs> now just shut up. <laughs> Uh, it was also reported that a neighbor heard Terry Hobbs yelling at the boys at 6.30 p.m., which is interesting because Terry said he was looking for him. So oh. how could he be yelling at him? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so this was the last time that the boys were seen alive. And what time is this? Just so I remember it. Well, maybe if you fucking pay attention the I'm first time. I'm sorry. I'm trying to get things situated okay. with the football game. So at 6 p.m., Michael Moore's mother saw them riding their bikes and then I said Stevie might have been on a skateboard he might have not been it you know okay and then another neighbor reported at 630 that she heard Terry Hobbs yelling at the boys okay. so that's Stevie's stepdad yeah okay yeah. Uh, so approximately 7 p.m. Dana loses sight of the boys and sends her daughter Dawn to go look for them at 8 p.m. John Mark Byers, who ends up going by Mark Byers, so that's just what I'm going to call yeah. him from now on. Um, he calls the West Memphis Police Department to report his stepson Christopher missing. I believe it's his adopted son. But uh, approximately 10 minutes later. Yeah, I, I think it was. Yeah, I think he adopted him. Yeah. Um, uh, approximately 10 minutes later, Officer Meeks arrives at the Byers household. He... Uh, excuse me, Mark Byers, told her that the boys were together when he last saw them at 5.30, and Donna Moore had seen them at 6. Christopher Mark Byers was born on June 23, 1984. He was described as a 4'4", weighing 50 pounds, with dark hair and brown eyes, and he was wearing jeans and a long-sleeve white shirt. Uh, Mark Byers was concerned because Christopher was on Ritalin, and he hadn't taken it that day. Mm -hmm. 
What happens if you don't take it? Oh, you're you're like a spaz. You're all over the place. Okay. Yeah. Um. So Mark Byers, like, he actually he was interviewed more than any other parent. He had a, a criminal record. Um. He was a pawnbroker and a jeweler, um, a drug dealer. Is that what his background was? What? Like his criminal background. This is the dad. Yeah. Um. He was also a friend of the police, though, and was known to be a confidential drug informant for oh, the Crittenden County Drug Task Force. Okay. Uh, that's just a side note. While Officer Meeks was finishing up with Mark Byers, she receives a call to go to the local Bojangles restaurant. <laughs> she arrives at Bojangles at 8.42 p.m. She spoke through the drive through window to the manager, Marty King, who had called. Kind of weird. She didn't go in. Yeah. yeah. Kind of weird. <laughs> Through the drive-thru window. Okay. I'd have been like, can I get a cheeseburger yeah, too? Right. Please. Can I have a number three value meal, large yeah. size? Go ahead and sign this report for me. Right. right. So, and it gets worse that she didn't go in. Um, so Marty told Officer Meeks that just prior to him calling the police, a black man who appeared to be, quote, mentally disoriented and covered in blood stumbled into the restaurant and went into the woman's bathroom. Yeah. The man left the area on foot before Petey arrived. When the employees looked at the bathroom after he left, there was blood everywhere. Smeared all over the walls, the bathroom stalls, the floor, the sink, the mirrors. Yeah. Everywhere. The employees said they couldn't tell if it was the man bleeding or if he was covered in blood. Yeah. Uh, Officer Meeks took the report, but she never entered the restaurant. Dude. Did, and you didn't think about collecting the blood? She didn't even go in, babe. She went through the drive-thru. I, I mean, I know this is... <laughs> like, I know DNA wasn't a big thing It wasn't a thing then. then, but like, you don't you want to look at the bathroom that's yeah. covered in blood? Maybe take photographs? No, she literally she went through the drive-thru, talked to him, didn't go in, and the employees cleaned it up. If that's not a lazy fucking asshole cop, mm-hmm. I don't know what is. So, at 9.01 p.m., she actually left the restaurant to respond to a criminal mischief call about someone egging a house. Um, my note says, so egging a house is more important than a missing <laughs> child and a bloody man yeah. who's obviously altered for yeah. whatever reason. Right. I have asterisks and I none. Oh, okay. Uh, at 9.18 p.m., Terry goes to pick up Pam from work. Pam or Pam? Yeah. <laughs> he walks into the restaurant right past Pam, doesn't say a fucking word to her, goes to the payphone, makes phone call, makes a phone call. Yeah. Pam's like, what the fuck, you weirdo? Yeah. Walks outside, uh, goes to the car because she has candy for Stevie and her younger daughter, Amanda. Only Stevie wasn't in the car. When she asks Amanda where he is, she says, quote, Mama, we can't find him. Pam's brain immediately thinks the worst, but she pushes it out of her mind. Terry comes out of the restaurant saying he called the police because Stevie was missing. He repeatedly said that him and Amanda had been together the entire time looking for Stevie. Hmm. But are we starting an alibi? Yeah. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. So now Pam goes in and calls the police also. Mm. Um, wait, why do I have this? Okay, so he said when he dropped Pam off that he immediately went looking for Stevie because he was supposed to be home by 4.30. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so my side note says, it later came out that from 5 p.m. to 9.18 p.m. when he left to pick up Pam, 
Terry had not started looking for Stevie immediately after getting home, um, like he said. His friend David Jacoby said that they hung out at Terry's house and played guitars. Terry left the house alone twice, totaling two hours, saying he was in the woods mm. searching um, for, for Stevie. Yeah. Terry showed little to no concern for Stevie per David Jacoby. And what's the time frame we got again? This was between 5 p.m. and 9.18. So it was... a lot of time and then to leave twice. Totaling two hours. Mm -hmm. That's a four-hour and 18-minute window and he was gone for two hours. That's a lot of fucking time right there. So, um, at 9.24 p.m., Officer Meeks is again dispatched to Barton Street, but this time to the Moore residence. Dana Moore called the uh, police to report Michael missing. She said she lost sight of the boys around 7 p.m. and her daughter couldn't find him. James Michael Moore was born July 27, 1984. He was described as 4 feet tall, 60 pounds, brown hair, blue eyes. He was wearing jeans, a Cub Scout shirt, and an orange Cub Scout hat. Um, <clears throat> let me flip. Sorry. Flip. So Pam then called the police. So another officer goes to the Catfish Island restaurant and talks to Pam. Stevie Edward Branch was born November 26th of 1984. He was described as four foot two, 60 pounds, blonde hair, and blue eyes. He was wearing blue jeans and a white short sleeve t-shirt. It was assumed the boys went to Robin Hood Hills where they normally went and were possibly um, seen heading that way. The whole neighborhood came out to search the deceptively dense woods and surrounding areas. Yeah. Um, so the, the wooded area was called Robin Hood Hills. Not a great place. Like, parents did not want their kids playing in it, but the kids were like, fuck yes. Yeah. Like, forts and caves yes. and, you know, they I, could all man, that kind of we, shit. We had a spot yeah. like that, too. Um, it was a <clears throat> creepy forest. A lot of ditches, creeks, uh, places to make forts. There was a large drainage ditch. Um, yeah. the, the parents especially hated it, though, because it was very close to a, a huge truck stop that was always busy and one of the busiest expressways Ooh. in the country, which yeah. was 55. Yep. So um, the search all but ended at midnight with nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was midnight, obviously, so it's dark as shit. A lot of the people said that they tried to go into the woods, but the bugs were just overwhelming. So... See, on the first day, though, like, I, I don't know how you give up a search. Yeah. They couldn't see anything. That's what they said. Uh, oh, okay. Cool. You get, got a flashlight? Go to the store and get a flashlight. Yeah. I, I don't understand. Like, that now is, like, the time, like... Yeah. You know what I'm... Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? First 48 people. Yeah, but, like... The pressure is Not building. to mention, it has been statistically proven that most children who are kidnapped are murdered within three hours of exactly. the Exactly. So, yes. Exactly. Time so, is of the utmost importance right now. Yeah. So, like, calling it at this time? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. You're, you're not calling it. You're fucking out there. I mean, we can make a list of the fuck-ups. <clears throat> so. Yeah. But I just... That bothers me. So, that's... I felt like I needed to... Well, Mark Byers said that he continued to search the woods until almost 4 a.m. He um, Good for him. was in, I think it said shorts or something. So he went home and changed into coveralls and went back in, but didn't bring a flashlight with him. Wow. Which, okay. I, just a side note. So um, the search started up again first thing in the morning. 
Chief Inspector of the West Memphis PD's Detective Division, Gary Gitchell, announced at the usual morning shift briefing that the boys were meeting and he would be directing the search. Gary Gitchell is a fucking twat face. Am I going to, like, hate him? Yes. Oh, God. Yes. Um, A search and rescue team from the Crichton County Sheriff's Office would also be assisting. Uh, Also, within a few hours, a helicopter from Memphis uh, PD Mm. came over. By mid-morning, dozens of people had joined the search to help the police. Detectives and citizens checked yards, parking lots, various neighborhood buildings, uh, including some that were still damaged from a tornado that had uh, hit the previous year. Two miles of fertile, low-level farmland was also searched. However, the most intensive search remained in the woods because that's where they assumed the kids were. For hours, groups of 50 cops and volunteers combed the rough terrain four acres um, of the wooded, uh, the, the dense woods that lined the diversion ditch, walking shoulder to shoulder but turned up nothing. Mm. Members of the county search and rescue team put a john boat in the bayou and pulled it down the stream. So basically they put a little, like, just a, a little boat. And mm. they were on either side of the boat with poles poking oh, to see if okay. they could hit anything, yeah. essentially. <clears throat> um By noon, most of the searchers discouraged from the search of the woods um, with their concern increasing that they were looking in the wrong spot. They left the woods to search elsewhere. Um, Between 1.30 and 1.45, Steve Jones, who's also a twat a Crichton County juvenile officer, heard about the boys and came to help. Um, Now, I just want to point out that in this county, Crichton County, juvenile officers are not police officers. Oh, really? They are not police officers. They are probation officers. Wow. So the two, okay. the, in in this, in yeah. this case, the two main juvenile officers that are talked about are not the fucking police. That's good to know. So. But probation, so I mean, they still have, I'm not going to say they have police powers, but they still do possess right. some. Right, legally they have yes. some powers, but they are not Right. Police officers. That, that's interesting, though. Wow. So um, he came to the woods to, to help. Uh, when everybody abandoned the woods search, he stayed and continued searching in the area. He was in the section of the woods nearest to the Blue Beacon truck wash. He looked into a steep-sided gully and saw a boy's black tennis shoe without the laces. Mm. He immediately radios in what he found, and Sergeant Mike Allen of the West Memphis PD enters the wood from the subdivision side. Jones led Allen to a spot about 60 yards south of the interstates and pointed down to the shoe floating on the water. Um, I'll give you the trigger warning now. Yeah. It's going to get... I have goosebumps. It's going to get bad. Um, so everyone was like, D- what the fuck? Like, yeah. they, they had searched that area the night before and then all day. Right. So... Police converged on the area again. Sergeant Allen, dressed in a suit, was the first to enter the water. It was murky, muddy, and fucking disgusting, and about two to three feet deep. The mud at the bottom was the kind of mud that, like, suction cupped your feet. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So when Allen raised a foot, it made a sucking, reluctant sound and caused bubbles to float to the surface. Along with the bubbles, a pale form slowly rose to the surface. Turn me off, because it's going to get bad. Um, 
The pale figure was the naked boy of a child, grotesquely arched backwards. Word of the body spread quick and searchers raced back to the woods trying to figure out what they had missed and how they had missed it, but only Gitchell's detectives were being let in. At 2.15 p.m., crime scene tape is up and streets are blocked off. The detectives knew at this point if one of the bodies was submerged, the other two boys were most likely there too. Yeah. Detective Brian Ridge, um, I, I don't know how he fucking did this, but he volunteered to go back in the water. Yeah. So, well, I mean, someone's got to do it. Yeah. He left um, the first body where it was, walked several feet downstream, and waded into the water. He then got down on all fours and started to slowly c- crawl through the narrow ditch, feeling with his hands. I don't know if I ever tell- told you, but I, I helped with my little girl. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, someone's got to do it, you know, as bad as it is. Right. And... But... It's a special breed. You guys are a special breed. Yeah, but, you know. I had to put her in. You know, I, yeah. I was the one putting her in the bag. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he searched the mud with his hands, expecting and dreading at this point that he was going to bump into one of the boys. Uh, the first thing he encountered, though, was a stick that was unnaturally stuck in the mud. When he pulled the stick up, a child's white shirt came with it. Both of the, There were two boys wearing white shirts. Detective Ridge stood up and went back to the floating body, wanting to move him, seeing it didn't feel right leaving him there. Yeah. He lifted the body and placed him on the East Ditch Bank. This was the body of Michael Moore. Um, he was nude, and he was essentially hogtied, but they were hogtied different. So his right wrist was tied to his right foot behind him. His left wrist tied to his left ankle with his shoelaces. He had multiple bruises, welts, and lacerations to his head and face. So imagine when you lay on the ground and you try to, you put your hands back and try to lift your feet. Yeah. That's how the boys were. Um, it was a very vulnerable pose. Yeah. Exposing them, which is what made people think that there was a sexual nature to the case right, right. away. Right. Uh, Detective Ridge went back into the water and quickly the, the boys' clothing was found, all but one sock and two pairs of underwear. Uh, three pairs of pants were found, all buttoned and zippered, but two of the two pairs of the pants were inside out. So they had taken sticks and put everything down in the mud with the yeah. sticks. Uh, Detective Ridge went further downstream and found Stevie Branch's body. He was also nude, tied right wrist to right ankle and left wrist to left ankle in the same grotesque pose. Stevie also had multiple bruises, welts, and lacerations to the head and face, However, the left side of his face was completely mutilated. It appeared as if someone or something had savagely bitten his face. And in the autopsy photos, it it looks like somebody bit his fucking face off. Well, what about all the fucking reptiles? Right. There's in... that that comes up later. There's turtles in in this water. Oh, well, there you so, go. But I mean, they don't they can't tell. So, um Minutes later, Christopher Byers was found submerged face down in the mud. So they were all pinned down. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Face down. Um, into the mud. Mm, Jesus. Uh, he was also nude. Tied right wrist to right ankle, left wrist to left ankle in the same backwards pose. 
He also had uh, multiple bruises, welts, and lacerations to his head and face. So somebody beat the fuck out of these yeah. kids. Yeah. Um, when they rolled him over to take him out of the water, they were horrified to see that he had been castrated. Ugh, his scrotum was gone, and his penis had been skinned, leaving only a thin flap of flesh where his genital genitals should have been. The area surrounding the castration also appeared to have been stabbed multiple times, leaving deep puncture wounds. All three boys in their clothing had been pulled out of the water by approximately 3 p.m. 30 yards away, two bikes were also found submerged. Uh, 3.20 p.m., approximately two hours after the bodies were found, the coroner was called, which I get, like, they're, they're doing the best they can with what they have, but it's hot. It's, yeah. you know, it's sunny. You have these boys that have been in the water for God knows how long. Yeah. Now they're in the grass. You're yeah. speeding up decomp. Yep. So by the time the coroner came, there was fly larva. And I mean, yeah. there was already bugs on these boys. So yeah. time of death would have been very hard to narrow down. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the coroner's notes, this is what he wrote. Quote, on May 6, 1993, at approximately 3.20 p.m., I received a call from the West Memphis Police Department that they found the three boys and they needed me to go to the Blue Beacon truck wash. With me was Ed Pan, I should have wrote that better, an employee of Roller Citizens Funeral Home. Upon arrival, we trekked through the woods to a drainage ditch where the bodies of the three youths were found. All bodies were removed from the water and were on the ditch banks covered in black plastic. Uh, according to the coroner, body number one, which was Michael, was on the east ditch bank, hogtied, laying on his side, and there was lividity to the buttocks and back. Body number two was on the west ditch bank, also with lividity to the buttocks and back. And body number three, which was Christopher, was also on the west ditch bank. Uh, body was laying on its right side with lividity to buttocks and back. Yeah. All three bodies were in rigor, but the coroner was unable to tell at what stage due to the way that they were bound. Because rigor comes, it starts, mm-hmm. and then rigor eventually goes away. Yeah. So it's it's hard to tell yeah. where they were. Plus, once your limbs are tied in that position, they're not moving. Right. So um, all three bodies also had evidence of postmortem staining on the face and chest, which postmortem staining is essentially lividity. Mm-hmm. And this was caused from them being face down in right. the mud. Right. The con- the con- the coroner the coroner pronounced the boys at the scene uh, at approximately four p.m. The scene was photographed and videotaped um, along the ditch. This time, like I was saying earlier, the bodies had been out of the water for some time, and there were insects already. Yeah. Gitchell ordered the ditch to be sandbagged above where the bodies were found and drained below that. Uh, he was hoping to recover Christopher's genitals, which were never found, the missing underwear, the murder weapon, or any other type of evidence they could find. At this point, a large crowd had assembled, including the media. Gitchell made his way to the crowd looking for the parents. He sees Terry Hobbs first and as gently as he can, tells him, yes, the boys' bodies have been found, and yes, it was clear that they had been murdered. Pam Hobbs, and there's a video of this. Oh, the sound that comes out of her mouth when they tell her, and she just drops. It's bad. Bad. Mm. I've heard it. I've heard that sound one time. It's it's animalistic and guttural, and it's it's heart-wrenching to watch this. She just drops. 
Um, Gitchell spoke very briefly to the media, I said to the police, giving them virtually no details. Um, he then made his way over to Mark Byers. The men had a private conversation that was photographed by the West Memphis Evening Times because it appeared it was a very personal yeah. um, a personal encounter. Mark Byers hung out with the cops. Like, they came to his house for barbecues and, and shit like that. So right. it really was a personal encounter. It was a <clears throat> friend telling a friend. Yeah. Um, after Gitchell walked away, Byers was approached by reporters. He shook his head, saying he had searched within 15 feet of where the boys were found. He also told the reporters that detectives told him one of the boys had been hit above the eye, another had a jaw injury, and the assault on the third child had been even, quote, worse than that. Eventually, a black hearse was seen turning into the Blue Beacon truck wash and then backing up to the edge of the lot. The boys' bodies were wrapped in sheets, put in body bags, and carried out of the woods into the hearse because that was the only way they could get them out. Reporters from Memphis, Little Rock, and Jonesboro had arrived and started drilling Gitchell for information, but his only response was that he had nothing more to say. Yeah. Reporters from the Memphis Commercial Appeal had been listening to the police scanner and picked up a channel being used by the Arkansas State Police, which, when they're on their own band, they're not very um, conspicuous. They're yeah. talking a lot about, you know, so. Yeah. Um, so, of course, the story was the headline the next day. It referenced how the boys were tied, and it also incorrectly reported that the boys had been sexually assaulted. Mm. When asked about the article, especially the sexual mutilation, Gitchell refused to comment. West Memphis went into shock at this point. Teachers were concerned about the other students' fears uh, because Gitchell was keeping information close to them. <laughs> the reporters started focusing on the families. So they started like stalking these poor families. Um, Mark Byers was more willing to speak to the media. The other parents didn't say much. They went to Dana's Moore house, Dana Moore's house and she opened the door crying and she's like, I, I can't, I can't talk about it. I can't. Talk. And they still kept like knocking on her fucking door. Yeah. So, um, so we'll kind of skip around with dates here a little bit, just so you know. May 10th, 1993, West Memphis Evening News printed the headline, Police Still Confident They'll Solve the Murders. Gitchell said his officers were tired, but were going to make it. Within hours of the bodies being found, the Arkansas Governor Jim Guy Tucker, Jim Guy Tucker, offered Gitchell the assistance of the state police and their criminal investigation unit. Uh, he said no. What? Goof? Yeah. Why? So you're you something like this? Well, not Dude. to mention the fact they there were not like they weren't well versed in murder investigations to no, begin. With. And I'm sure they wanted the fucking glory of solving That's it. That's what Gitchell wanted. So people thought maybe he was reluctant um, because of the information being leaked, or maybe there was a darker fucking ask for as much help as possible. Well, here's the thing. So at the time of the boys' murders, several officers in the West Memphis PD and the Crichton County PD were under investigation by the Arkansas State Police. The investigation centered on drugs and corruption and started with a deputy's murder over drugs. Jesus. The murder exposed the dirty secrets of the county's drug task force. So a lot of people speculated that Gitchell was afraid if the state police came in, they were going to be focused on the dirty cops versus the murders. Yeah. Um, 
Wow. On May 7th, 1993, the boys' aut- autopsies were done. The ME placed the time of death as 6 p.m. to 7.45 p.m. on May 5th, 1993. So that's a huge window. Yeah. But there's so many factors that, that go into it with them being submerged. Oh, and, yeah. You know. So why can I not turn the fucking page? Uh, authorities had a ton of questions they hoped the autopsy would help answer. And we'll find out in part two that uh, they waited weeks for the autopsy reports. Really? Weeks. Like, they did not get these reports till the end of May. Wow. So I'll go into that a little bit more in part two. Um, One of the first things, actually, that was questioned um, was how the boys were hogtied. They thought it was weird. They weren't hogtied like normal. Yeah. An officer on scene said that prisoners of the Vietnam War were tied in this fashion as a means of torture. Mm. So... Uh, the manner in, mit- in which these murders took place was very out of the ordinary. Yeah. The knots were also uh, evaluated, like looked at hard. Yeah. Two of the boys were tied with the same knots, and one boy had different knots, and they were very specific, like special knots, not just like tying a knot. Okay. So, like in- you would have to learn how to be. Yes. Okay. Yes. Like, like a military knot. Okay. For lack of better gotcha. terms. Um, so they were like, is this a fucking vet? Like, what What are we looking for here? Yeah. But then they kind of switched gears pretty quickly because of how out of the ordinary this was. Um, the authorities immediately suspected some satanic connections because of this. Satanic panic. That's where it comes in. Yeah. Frank Peretti did the autopsies. Uh, many people were not fans of him and questioned his statements and doubted him thoroughly. This was due to him failing the medical examiner test twice, refusing to take it a third time due to, quote, personal reasons, which I couldn't find what the personal reasons were. Yeah. So he was able to perform the autopsies, and he was a medical examiner physician, you know, but right. he was not a certified medical examiner. Um. Trigger warning again. Yeah. Michael Moore had <clears throat> six, excuse me, sixty-three specific injuries. Thirty-four were to the right side, nineteen were to the left side. He had endured a severe beating with most of the injuries to the upper body, including ten skull fractures and Jesus. multiple defensive wounds. Christopher Byers had sixty-two specific injuries, sixteen to the right, thirty-six to the left with 24 being uh, to the lower part of the body. Stevie Branch had 21 specific injuries, 7 to the right side, 11 to the left side. Uh, Frank Peretti believed that a serrated knife was used in the murders. Yeah. It's unknown if the boys were stripped and then beaten and stabbed or vice versa, but there were no stab marks in the clothing, so they were probably stripped first. Stripped, yeah. Um, his conclusions of the boys' injuries and how they were inflicted were seen by many other Emmys as wrong, which I don't know why. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> so at this point, the police very much suspected the boys had been sexually assaulted. Yeah. It was later determined it was highly probable that they were not sexually assaulted okay. at all. So uh, it was determined Michael and Stevie's cause of death was drowning, so they were alive when they went in the water. Oh, And Christopher's was blood loss from multiple injuries. So he died prior to being put in the water. Um, So with that being Christopher's cause of death, blood loss, and the other boy's injuries, which were mostly to the 
head and face, and it, they bleed. Yeah. They bleed a lot. Oh, head injuries. And, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So authorities couldn't figure out why there was literally no blood at the crime scene. None. No blood, no DNA. Because they didn't, they weren't killed there. That was their first thought, was that they weren't, obviously they weren't killed there. Somebody said maybe it took place in the water, but mm. I, how hard would that be, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> so... Somebody found an undated, unsigned, quote, summary regarding the investigation printed on police stationery, um, and it stated the basic details, but continuously got the boys' names wrong. Like, it kept saying, these police records were insane. The author of The Devil's Knot um, made a comment along the lines of, to say that the police records were messy would be... um, An understatement. Yes, yes. So... It said, uh, quote, there was an analysis has determined that a knife with a serrated edge was used to castrate more. It also stated, quote, a crime scene search failed to locate any traces of blood or other evidence, which would lead investigators to believe the victims had been murdered in the area where the bodies were located. Was that the coffee bag? Coffee machine. Uh, quote, a hammer or a round object was used to create trauma to the head of all three victims. Quote, there is possibility that Byers may have been injected by a hypodermic needle. He wasn't. Needle? Did I say needle? Yeah. Needle. Um, The medical examiner also advised that evidence would tend to indicate that the victims had been struck with a belt containing studs or a raised surface. So immediately they thought Mark Byers because he had initially told them the police that he had given Christopher quote a few licks with a uh, belt the day he went missing so in an attempt to find any evidence the investigators decided to use luminol which we talk about frequently Um, so they wanted to use it in the area the bodies were found there was a positive reaction on the west bank to the right of the stream police later explained this that this explained this away as this is where two of the bodies were placed after being found yeah uh there was a trail along the stream bed with a tree that had positive reactions to both sides of the tree more concentration on the right facing the stream positive reaction to the area west of the trail where used plastic sheeting was found Hmm. do you want to know what they did with the sheeting threw it out not a fucking thing yeah uh, guys, maybe that's why there was no blood. Mm. Duh. Yeah. Um, the east bank of the stream bed, there was a pile of sticks with a depression in the soil. Showed a highly concentrated positive reaction. And there was a positive reaction um, to traces of, obviously, presumed blood along the trail, bluff, and slope of the bank. However, investigators said that this was caused by the search and rescue efforts. Yeah. Now... The luminol testing wasn't done for a couple days. Um, I believe it was May 12th. I forgot to write it down. Uh, and there had also been a rainfall, at least one rainfall since that time. Mm. So <clears throat> May 10th, Terry and Pam Hobbs spoke, spoke briefly to the police, but they were not officially interviewed, and their home initially wasn't searched for fibers. Remember that, fibers. Okay. Um. Interviews with the parents and searches of the home weren't done for a very long time. <laughs> then what's the point? Yes. Uh, the investigation looking into the parents was barely a fucking investigation. <laughs> That's what I wrote. 
and was receiving little attention. However, the most unusual possibility of a, quote, gang or cult had been on the investigator's radar just due to the nature of the crime. A lot of the investigators started thinking the murders were part of a satanic ritual, which fucking kills me because, okay, so we did the toy box killer? Yeah. He didn't worship Satan. He was fucking Catholic. Right. Like, why are we assuming that? Right. Again, the odds of it are just so... So slim to none. Yeah. Slim to none. So fucking crazy. Satanic panic. Yeah. Because yeah. um, it's a good story. Yes. Yes. In the midst of the satanic panic, the sexual mutilation, and the murders being committed on the night of a full moon, quote, proved that these were satanic ritualistic murders. The media caught wind of this and fucking ran with it and blasted it out to the community. So any other thought of any other way that this could go was now gone. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> however, some detectives still committed hundreds of hours to the third possibility of someone completely unknown to the kids murdering them. Mm. So, there were two other suspects. Okay. I don't know if a lot of people know this. Uh, 19-year-old Chris Morgan and 20-year-old Brian Holland pieced the fuck out right after the murders. Left. Went to California. Done. Just gone. Um, They were West Memphis residents who abruptly took off to Oceanside, California, just days after the murders. They both had issues with drugs and alcohol, and they both knew the boys. Chris knew the three boys because he was an ice cream man in their neighborhood. Yeah. But that is pretty suspicious to just... Oh, yeah. Up and leave. It gets better. So Brian knew uh, Stevie because their parents were friends. So Brian's parents and Stevie's parents were friends. So after the murder, these two, Chris and Brian, actually went to the Hobbs' home to uh, the day after the murders to show, quote, remorse, which I know that's not what he meant, yeah. but that's what he said. Uh, after the tip came in, Gary Gitchell and Detective Stan Birch contacted Sergeant John... Flip. Lamb of Oceanside Police Department and briefed him on the murders. Uh, both Chris and Brian voluntarily came into the station for interviews and sexual assault exams. They were both cooperative and took polygraphs. Both showed deception regarding questions about the murder. And there is written documentation and reports of this. Of really? them. Yeah, with their the polygraphs being deceptive. Yeah. Because later on, when when another one takes a polygraph there's no record of it so it's important to know that this is this is all documented properly i read the whole report from sergeant john lamb it's all on the Mm. internet obviously it's on the internet and they were deceptive they were deceptive regarding questions of the murder wow uh after being confronted with the results chris became increasingly hostile stating quote this is so fucking screwed up out of nowhere he blurted out quote well, maybe I freaked out, then blacked out, and killed the three little boys, and then fucked them up the ass or something. What? Oh, dude, that's... So the officer doing the interview Ugh. was like, what the fuck yeah. just happened? Yeah. And was like, uh, so maybe you blacked out? And Chris responded with, quote, maybe I did, there's no telling what happened. And then he asked for a hypnotist. What? Because he said he couldn't remember and he thought the hypnotist would be able to come out and say that he didn't do it. Yeah. This uh, is weird. When asked if he could have done it, he immediately said no, that he would never hurt anyone intentionally, but then said, quote, maybe I'm Chris and Hyde. 
like Jekyll and Hyde. He again said he wanted to talk to a hypnotist. The officers asked what if the hypnotist told him he did black out and killed the kids. Chris said, quote, well, I would expect you to take appropriate action then. Well, if I did kill the kids and I blacked out or something, well, I'll go to jail for it. I would expect that. Hmm. What? Okay. What? Yeah. Um, I don't even know what, what to comment. It gets better. Uh, Brian was also told he was deceptive on the polygraph, mm-hmm. and his initial question was, was he deceptive on the same questions as Chris was? Yeah. Uh, the officer told him yes, and he responded with, quote, well, I just guessed. What? Uh, Brian denied having any firsthand knowledge of the murder, saying he heard everything through friends and newspapers. He said he heard on the news that the boys were found in a ditch and they'd been tied up, then demonstrated how they were tied. Uh, he also said he rarely goes to West Memphis and his parents and girlfriend could vouch for his whereabouts those days. Yeah. Copies of the tapes, the polygraph results, and the evidence collected from the men were sent via FedEx. They collected blood, urine, they did sexual assault exams. Yeah. Um, the whole kit and caboodle on Good. these kids. Yeah. Uh, everything was sent via FedEx to Gary Gitchell at the West Memphis PD. Um, do you want to know what he did with it? Probably fucking... Absolutely nothing. What I wrote was not a motherfucking thing. Probably just put it in his office somewhere on his desk and now it's, there it sat. Now it's gone. Oh, God. Now it's gone. So Amazing. Gone. This, this, this guy said, maybe, eh, maybe I'd kill him. Eh. Nothing. They stayed in California. They didn't even come back. Oh, my yeah. God. Mm-hmm. So, um, Gitchell had already decided in his mind who who did it. Yeah. Um, the, investor, the investigators decided to call in Jerry Driver. Now, let me tell you something about Jerry Driver. Um, he is the twat face of all twat faces. Ooh. He, that good. Huh? He is the reason that this happened. Really? He is 100% without a doubt the number one reason that this fucking happened. No shit. There's, there's no other, nothing. He did okay. this. He did this. Okay. So, <clears throat> he was a juvenile officer who knew a lot about Satanism, the occult, and cult connections. He was asked to make a list of anyone on probation that had any connection to activity involving the occult or Satanism, because this is how they were doing their oh investigation. Oh, my God. Jerry Driver immediately thought of Damien Eccles. Um, I wrote, this is literally the only reason Damien became a suspect. Driver was literally obsessed with Damien, and he would also drive around West Memphis looking for occult meetings. So, like the girls on Morbid said, he's a witch hunter. He's a witch hunter. That's all he's doing. Basically. Um, His obsession with Damien started years before, and for some reason, he had a fucking heart on for him and was like, I'm going to take him down. That's all there is to it. And this was like his golden opportunity to do so. Um, He he said that Damien read Stephen King and wore black clothing, so obviously he was the devil. Oh, obviously. Yes, of course he was. Jesus Christ. Um, On May 7th, 1993, Officer Steve Jones, remember the twat face who found the shoe? Yeah. Uh, A juvenile officer who worked with Jerry Driver, they were partners, interviewed Damien Eccles at the insistence of Jerry Driver. I'll get into the 
the interview later. No. Um, so a little background. Uh, so the West Memphis Three consisted of Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly. When Jerry Driver thought of Damian Eccles, he also thought of Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly, which I don't understand why with Jesse Miss Kelly, but you'll see. So Damian Eccles was born Michael Wayne Hutchinson on December 11th of 1974. His parents divorced when he was eight, and he had attended eight schools before he was 10. He grew up extremely poor, um, poor that we would never even imagine. Okay. you, you couldn't imagine. But the, it was awful. Yeah. He dropped out of high school and was largely considered an outcast in a place like West Memphis because he wore black and had long black hair and painted yeah. his nails. And When Damien's mother remarried, he was adopted by his new stepdad, Jack, and he was having his last name changed, so he decided to say, change his first name, too. Everybody's like, oh, Damien after the devil. Oh, God. In reality, at this time in his life, uh, Damien was... Excuse me. Very interested in all kinds of religion and was studying them. Damien is very intelligent. Yeah. Um, at the time, he was elbow deep in Catholicism and learning about that. And right. he picked the name Damien after a priest who um, worked with lepers. Oh, really? So Damien first crossed paths with Jerry Driver when he started dating a girl named Deanna. Deanna's mom didn't like Damien and called the police multiple times for multiple reasons including them breaking up and getting back together. Damien and Deanna decided to run away, but had to wait out a storm in a trailer because they didn't have a fucking car. Right. So they broke into this trailer, uh, and Jason Baldwin was with them. Um, after Deanna's mom called the police again, the couple were found in the tra- trailer, naked from the waist down. Uh, nothing was taken, but both were arrested and charged with burglary and sexual misconduct. Deanna was immediately released to her parents, but Damien ended up in juvenile detention. Damien's room was searched by driver, who's not a fucking police officer, (laughs) and he took all of Damien's notebooks and artwork and everything like that and put them into evidence citing that Damien was veering dangerously toward an interest in the occult. Sure. Not an officer. Right. Yeah. Uh, Damien was actually a model prisoner and treated the staff with, quote, the utmost respect. However, a rumor started that Deanna and Damien planned on, planned on conceiving a child to be born and sacrificed in a satanic ritual. Right. Because that's what you do. Oh, so, God. This, <laughs> there's so many, like, how the fuck did this happen moments. Yeah. Okay. So here's one. Driver heard about this rumor and took it upon himself to contact a psychiatric hospital in Little Rock. He got Damien admitted off of the rumor and then drove him there himself. Off a fucking rumor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then drove him there. Dude, who the fuck is this guy? So psychiatrists at the hospital evaluated Damien. They said he did not worship Satan, but was a self-proclaimed Wiccan and was interested in witchcraft. Wiccan is you worship like the earth. Yeah. Not not Satan. Right. Yeah. So um he was diagnosed with major depression and was given medication. What the, the way he grew up, Jesus Christ. Yeah. He's going to be depressed, right. you know. Um his immediate problems when he got to the hospital uh were listed as and were given to the hospital by Jerry Driver. Quote, 
extreme physical aggression towards others, suicidal ideation and intent, depressed moved and or excuse me, mood, and bizarre and unusual thinking. After three weeks in the hospital, Damien was no longer considered a threat to himself or others, and with the blessing of the prosecuting attorney, Damien was moving away from Arkansas with his mom and sister. Yeah. Um, so July of 1992, the family moved to Aloha, Oregon, into an apartment with Joe Hutchinson, which was the kid's biological father. Yeah. Um, driver just couldn't leave well enough alone, and he contacted Oregon's juvenile authorities, asking them to provide, quote, courtesy supervision for the duration of Damien's probation. An Oregon juvenile counselor wrote Driver had, quote, made the following statements. A, Damien and several of his associates are involved in a satanic cult. B, Damien and his girlfriend were both put into a psych hospital. C, Damien threatened to kill his girlfriend's parents. D, Damien claims he is a witch. And uh, E, Damien and his girlfriend were planning to have a child to offer a sacrifice to Satan. And F, authorities in Arkansas suspect Damien's parents are involved in the satanic belief system. Hmm. So fucking none of it was yeah. true. Not a single statement. But it made. sounds good. I, it's great. It sounds great. Sounds fucking awesome. Thank God for the Oregon authorities because they were like, fuck you. Yeah, hopefully they <laughs> threw that in the fucking garbage. What they said was after meeting with Damien and his family, which multiple people had stated was just a fucking dumpster fire. Yeah. Like they were, you know... Um, they said that he needed a, quote, minimal level of supervision until he turned 18 in four months. Yeah. Uh, this was not good enough for a driver. So he wrote a letter, again, to the Oregon authorities saying that Damien was violating his probation by, a con- by attempting to contact Deanna, which he was not. Uh, the Oregon authorities completely ignored his letter. Good. <laughs> good. Eventually, Get Damien... Fucked. Yeah. Eventually, Damien and his parents started having issues, and he wanted to go back to Arkansas. Mm-hmm. He was going to go back and live with his stepdad. Yeah. So Damien's physician and the Oregon juvenile authorities agreed to, quote, emancipation and return to Arkansas. They felt that that would be the best thing for him. Wow. Okay. Despite Oregon authorities approving this and Driver being officially notified... He swore out an affidavit that Damien was violating the terms of his probation. Dude, someone fucking punched by, this guy. By leaving Oregon. Prosecutor, Prosecutor Fogelman filed a petition to have Damien's probation revoked based off of Driver's affidavit. Driver's affidavit was missing the pertinent details of Oregon approving his leave and of Driver being formally notified. As soon as he returned to Arkansas, Damien was adjudicated a delinquent, arrested, and sent back to juvenile what detention. A dick. He spent another two weeks what in the psych hospital yeah, in the Little Rock um, psych hospital, then spent the next two and a half months um, under driver's supervision. So, like, he he wasn't his guardian, but you know, yeah. So he said that. Um, he had to, uh, driver said he had to get his GED, he had to get a job, like he, yeah. you know, good, good things. This was yeah. like the only good thing he did. Yeah. Um, so by the time Damien had turned 18, he had gotten his GED, he had a part-time job with a roofing company, and had a new girlfriend, 16-year-old Dominique Tier. So, do you see why he's like the king of all twat faces? Yes, yeah. I get okay. it. So now Jason Baldwin. He was in the trailer with him. Yeah. He's 16 and was Damien's uh, best friend. They met in study hall when Jason was in seventh grade and Damien was in eighth. 
they were neighbors in Lakeshore, which is um, the trailer park. Mm -hmm. And Jason was also unbelievably poor. Yeah. Um, They both like skateboarding and heavy metal. Jason's father left when he was four. He visited once when Jason was 15, and that was the extent of his contact, despite the fact that he did live in Arkansas also. Yeah. He was very close with his mother and very protective of her and appreciated how hard she worked to support him and his brothers. She did, however, suffer from severe depression and schizophrenia um, and wasn't super compliant with her meds because she couldn't afford them. Mm -hmm. Um, And she attempted suicide. Jason was the one to find her and call 911. So he he got on Jerry Driver's radar when he was 12. Um, Jason said they were in a makeshift clubhouse. It was like this little abandoned shack thing that they would always go into. Um, The police, however, said that he broke into it, so they charged him with breaking and entering and criminal mischief. His probation officer was the other twat face, Steve Jones, and he became Jason's nemesis. Quote, he told me, I know you're trying to get a cult started. And after that, kids would say, we hear you and Damien have a cult. We'd say, no, we haven't. Who told you that? And they'd say, the police. Wow. Um, this, this broke my heart a little bit. Jason and Damien were so close, they considered themselves brothers. Damien said, quote, we shared everything we had. Food, clothes, money, whatever. If one of us had it, both of us had it. It was known without having to be said. Oh, mm-hmm. God. Yeah. Um, so then Jesse Miss Kelly, Damien met him when he went to Jason's house and Jason's mom said that they were at Jesse's. He also lived in the trailer park a couple trailers down. Right. Um, <clears throat> they weren't friends per se. They kind of just saw each other hanging out. Um, yeah. Side note, Jace, uh, Jesse had bitch tattooed on his chest. <laughs> no importance to it other than I felt the need to tell That's you that. That's awesome. Um, he had an IQ of 72 which was borderline mentally challenged, yeah. uh, also considered borderline intellectually functioning. Yeah. At the age of seven, he couldn't say his ABCs and could only count to 15 and was 11 years old in the third grade. Jeez. He was a small kid with nine half-siblings, which made him a fighter. He was very loyal and attached to his father, despite the fact that his father was a fucking drunk and would beat the shit out of him. So he felt he had to stick up for himself. He had to fight, yeah. you know? Um. What? Oh, May sixth. While West Memphis PD and county deputies were looking for the boys, did I? Did you like totally skip something? No, I didn't. Actually. Oh, okay. There's not much on Jesse Miss Kelly. Gotcha. So. Uh, it may sounded like that because I yeah, my brain stopped for a minute. Yeah, it did. The hamster fell off the wheel. He's getting back. He's on. back on. Um. <laughs> While um, Memphis PD and county deputies were looking for the boys, Detective Don Bray was stuck in the office working on uh, a report of an overrun credit card at the local truck stop. The owner suspected a new employee, uh, Victoria Melodine Hutchinson. No relation. He um, He was due to interview her, and she showed up at the appointed hour but brought her eight year old son with her. Yeah. And he was like, Who the fuck brings their kid to a fucking police interview? Yeah. She did it on purpose. Uh, Hutchinson explained that she brought Aaron because he was a good friend of the missing boys, adding that Christopher and Michael were Aaron's best friends. That is not true. Bray was thinking Aaron might be able to help, therefore throwing Bray into the sensational case. 
Oh, what a scumbag. He called the West Memphis PD only to be told that the boys had just been found. Bray couldn't help but think but think that Aaron knew what could have happened to the boys and no one had questioned him yet. He completely abandoned the credit card issue. Mm, go conveniently. Figure. Yeah, go figure. And told the truck stop owners that they probably fucked up their own paperwork and there was really no money missing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so I put that worked out nicely for Vicky, didn't it? <laughs> you know. Uh, Vicky told Bray during the interview that Michael and Christopher had asked Aaron to go into the woods the previous night, but she refused to let him go. Aaron told police he'd seen Michael Moore talking to a black man in a maroon car after school. The man was tall, wearing a t-shirt with writing on it, and had yellow teeth. Um, The man told Michael his mother had asked him to pick Michael up, so Michael got in the car and they rode off. Not the case. You know, she didn't ask anybody to pick him up. Um, Aaron's account wasn't taken very seriously because it really didn't make any sense. Right. However, tips were pouring in. Uh, Several residents reported seeing an unfamiliar white van in the area with varying accounts of the driver's description. Some people said it was an older gentleman with gray hair. Other people said it was a younger younger gentleman with blonde hair. Uh, So police started searching for white vans. Because they're paper vans. Yep. Lou, Lou drove one for a while. <laughs> fucking kills me. Creeper. He came to pick something up for me at work. And I'm like, where are you? And he's like, look outside. I'm in the raper van. 100% fucking raper oh, van. So obviously that led nowhere. So now at this point, the West Memphis um, PD and the other people working on it found out that Mark and his wife, Melissa, were not only working with the other county as confidential informants, but they were also working with the Memphis Police and Shelby County's uh, Narcotics Division. So they had criminal activity, so they were interviewed more than the other parents. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Driver took his concerns to Detective Don Bray, Mm -hmm. same guy, of the Marion Police Department after the boys' bodies had been found. Uh, Driver later noted that, quote, Don Bray was the first person who really listened to what was going on. He was interested in what we saw as the occult version of the crime. I think the West Memphis police took a little longer to come around. Obviously, because Damon was guilty, so were Jason and Jesse. So this is where we're actually going to end part one. So there's some more tips coming in. So, there's more tips that are coming in. Yeah. Um, in part two, we're going to really get into the interviews with Damien and Jason and Jesse. Um, and twat face Jerry Driver and all the stupid yes. shit he says. So Fucking goo. <clears throat> yeah, we'll really dive into that. Because okay. it's... Um, I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's, it's that obscene. This is how... This is how this started. Yeah. Driver took a picture of mugshot of Damien and went around town with it and asked if anybody knew uh, that he worshiped Satan. What? Yes. Dude, where is that like? How is okay? This, right. Right. Which is why I was so pissed off about how this ended. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> like it's great. I mean, there's a it's a great ending, but it's not how it should have been. So no. So wow. I'm gonna. Well, it's, 
it, this is interesting yeah. so far. So. I'm going to get part two out. Um, yeah, we're going to do it pretty soon. Yeah, I'm going to do it quickly. Um, yeah, quickly. I mean, I'm talking so, like we'll have it out by Monday. Yeah, you, Should. you guys shouldn't have to wait too long. Mm-mm. So Because I can't stop. Yes. I literally can't fucking stop. Right. So. But I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Yep. This part one. and uh, It's going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. It's a fucking dumpster fire. Yep. It's, it's heartbreaking, some of the things that oh, happen. Oh, yeah, by and far. I, yeah. It's awful. But yeah, stay tuned for part two. A few days. Yep. Coming and, soon. Uh, we will talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.